Good morning, church. Good morning, baby sister. You know, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty fun to be called to preach and to see what God's going to do. And uh, Ryan just preached the first half of my message. Um, as I got ready, I'm teaching Jotham in the book of Judges. God kept pointing me back to this, this contrast between the law and grace as I'm preparing this. Ryan said he had something he was going to speak and uh, about men and wisdom and uh, great, great. And I keep preparing and God keeps pointing me back. And then I'm driving. I was just about to leave the gate. I think it was yesterday, the day before. I'd just been reading this and, and he texts me and goes, I, no, God's telling me I'm going to, I'm going to teach this. And I go, <laughs> "Woo! I love working for you, dad. <laughs> Isn't it cool? So we're going to get we're going to get into more of that and the story of Jotham. Now, before I do, I'm going to go back and get us caught up because it's been a few weeks since we were in this story. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for letting us be here with you this morning and each other and your family. And thank you for your word and for opening it to us. Thank you, Father, for feeding us from it. Lord, I pray you would just uh, help me to get out of the way and us to see what you have for us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Judges Part 15. Now, I have been deprived. I'm down to 35 minutes of time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run out. No, I wasn't deprived. That's what God had for us. I'm going to run out of time, but we'll stop when we stop. So here we are. We're right here in Israel in the middle of the world. The world turns around this little nation. And here is the story so far that, we've, that we're going to catch up. So this was 18 years in the past, and it says, And in that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel 18 years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side, Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So here the children of Israel on the east side of Jordan have been oppressed, and then they call this fellow Jephthah, Judges 11.1. 1. Now Jephthah the Gileite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. So here is where he was born, and then they quickly kicked him out. His brothers did because he was the stepson, and they, he moved over to Tob. While he's over in Tob, he becomes a mighty man of valor, probably a guy who is um, raiding the, the people out in the deserts, the evil ones, and he ends up with a group of men around him that were, that were uh, uh, fighting with him, these guys. And then we're going to jump back forward 18 years. This is present in our timeline at 1087 B.C. It says in 11.4, And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. So they had been raiding for 18 years, and now they're gathering together to make war uh, a, a consolidated fight with Israel. Verse 5, And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. There's a lot in that that we covered last time. So they bring this guy Jephthah, who God has had in his training program over in Tob. They bring him back, and he is going to fight. Now that little star is Ramoth Gilead. That's where the, the fight is going to start. These guys are coming out of the desert from the northeast, and they claim that kind of pink territory that I've got right there, that, that uh, area between a couple of rivers, and they name it, and then out to the wilderness. They claim that, and they say, this is the area that we want, and if you don't give it to us, we're going to fight. 
So Jephthah goes out and he has three arguments that he writes to the king. The first argument is the historical argument. He says, this has been our land for a long time. Here's how we earned it. And then he has a divine right argument. He says, God gave us this land. If he wanted you to have it, he would have given it to you. And then he argues precedent. The people of the world around us, the other kingdoms, have recognized our sovereignty in this period, this place of, of property that you want. And so he gives this king three different arguments before war. He, he takes his time, and then he comes to a moral conclusion. And he says in verse 27, Wherefore I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearkened not unto the words of Jephthah, which he sent unto him. So he, he sends his letter, he makes his argument, he tells this gathered war party, this is not right, what you're doing is immoral, and if we go to war, I have the high ground is in morality. And they ignored him and fought anyway because they wanted his territory. Now, <clears throat> then it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah and Gilead, uh, Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. So uh, in between this, he has been coronated there in Ramoth Gilead. He has gone down there, and it says that he made his vows before the Lord. So this is a man that is a judge over Israel that is doing his best to honor God as he uh, takes up the mantle of leader of the people over there in Gilead. And now we are going to, that was, that was our last uh, message that we went through. Now we're going to jump into this fight. And we start with this stupid vow. Now, <clears throat> I don't say that mildly. I, I told you when I started teaching this uh, on him, this is my least favorite Bible story. I loathe and despise this Bible story. And this vow is why. And yet it has done so much to adjust me in my life. And it's very wise or right that God has this for us, and we don't want to skip it. But even, even knowing the story and reading it so many times, knowing I hate it when I went back and studied it, again, yesterday I'm reading through my notes, I just grit my teeth. I just, I just can't stand this Bible story. So he makes this vow, and what is it? Verse, Judges chapter 11, verse 30 and Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou will without fail deliver the children of Ammon unto mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, I want you to think about where he's at when he makes this vow. Now, this is a very serious thing that he's done, and I'll, I'll show you the commandment from God in a minute about how serious it is. But remember, remember Gideon, when he is out threshing wheat, an angel comes to Gideon and says, I've, we've picked you, God has picked you to be the one that will free Israel. What does Gideon say? Eh, yeah, prove it. I want to put a fleece out. So he proves it. His fleece is wet. Prove it again. Put the fleece back out. Keep it dry. Proves it again. So then Gideon 
timidly goes up and goes to war and then becomes this mighty man of valor. Well, not so with Jephthah. He's over here in, in minding his own business. He's made a life. And the people, not God, come to him and say, we need you and your skill set to come and be rulers over us. So he's gone from a small party, of a raiding party of war band. It said there were these men of valor around him. He takes these from that position, and he becomes the, the, the regent, the sovereign, over this great multitude of people. We'll see later, he kills 42,000 people as an afterthought. This is a big army with a lot of logistics, a lot of people moving around, people that he doesn't know, commanders that he's getting started with. They call him after Ammon has come and is in a place of war. So imagine being out minding your own business. Here they come knocking on your door. I need you to come and be president. By the way, you're at war with Europe. Well, that wouldn't be a very comfortable position to be in. Who's your war minister? No, that's fine. You've got 48 hours to prepare. Well, who's your chief? Who's the Navy? Who's, the, who's that? So here he is, and he's stumbling from from. Ramoth Gilead down to get ready to fight. And as he's traveling, my goodness, doubts have to start assailing this man. He starts, Ugh, what's going to happen? What's next? So he's going to pull an ace card. So he makes a vow to God. God, if you will give me deliverance, you see that, that, that conditional thing, if you'll give me deliverance, then whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I get back, I'm going to offer that as a burnt sacrifice to you. Now, when he makes this vow, this is a very serious thing. Numbers chapter 30, verse 1. And Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. When God is setting up Israel as a theocracy, God is adjusting their culture. Now, we have things in our culture about keeping your word. Are you a man of your word or not? That's an important thing. Now, that's sliding in our culture, and I'll prove it. The divorce rate's past 50%. We stand on an altar, and we say, before God and these witnesses, I vow to love this woman till death do us part or until I'm sick of it, and then I'm going to go my own way. If you vow a vow before the Lord, you better keep it, God says. You had best keep that, but I'm miserable. I don't care. You keep that vow. You made it. That's, that's what God's culture is for us. It's a serious thing to make a vow before God. So he says, if you make a vow, you had better keep that vow. That's an important part of a culture that recognizes the sovereignty or the the authority of God in your life. If you make that vow, you had best keep it. So it's a very serious thing that he did. Now, I want to show you what he's done and why I call it a stupid vow. Okay, so we start with a dollar bill. I want to talk about an exchange of values here. So let's start with a dollar bill. That's something that we all recognize is having intrinsic value. It has, it has substance. It's legal tender, right? Maybe less value than last year. But it still has value. And I have a dollar bill. You have a delicious piece of candy, right? So I come along and I say, I want to trade you my dollar bill for your delicious piece of candy. Then you'll have my value and I'll have yours. You understand? An equal exchange of value. 
And it doesn't matter if it's a dollar bill or a wicker basket. I can come along and say, I have seven baskets and I only have two pairs of clothes. I don't need the basket. I'll trade you my basket for your candy and, and we both get something out of this. That is the idea behind trade, behind commerce, right? That's what we do. It's something we understand. Let's think of it now. That's the way we deal with each other. How would we deal with God? Now, you think this, this might be ridiculous. Listen to the radio. I hear preachers all the time. If you give God X amount of dollars in sending it to me, that God's going to give you X amount of dollars in return. Value for value, right? You're just going to... You're going to pay me. God's going to pay you value for value. It's a, it's a serious thing that we're saying. So let's say I have a dollar, and I say, God, I want to have something equal to the value that I'm going to give you. So I'll give you a dollar, and you give me a safari truck. That's a terrible deal. Why would God? He's like the worst merchant in the world if this is the value that God's going to give me. So if I'm going to trade God a dollar for a safari truck, God's made a bad deal. He's given up a lot more value than he's gotten in return. You understand? That's a simple concept. Okay, keep going. So Jephthah has said, God, I will kill something that you made and love. Remember, God so loved the world. God loves his creation. And God loves the little ones. Remember Jonah when he's at Nineveh and he goes, why won't you kill those? And God says, hey, there's a bunch of kids down there that don't know their right hand from their left. I value them. So Jephthah says, God, if you will act in accordance to my will, if you'll give me this thing that I want, then I will give you something that you created. Now, is that a, that's, that's a terrible deal. That's a ridiculous thing to offer God to kill something that he loves in order to get him to do what you want to do. Here's what he's saying in essence. He's saying that if you will serve me, I will serve you. If you will give me the thing that I want, then I'm going to give you something in return for that. He's making a deal with God. What does that do? Well, it, it has some assumptions when we make a deal like that. We're making some very egregious assumptions. What's the first thing that we're, that we're determining here? The first thing is that you have something that God wants or needs. You're assuming that God needs that from you. So you come along and you say, God, if you will give me um, the ability to play guitars like a rock star, then what I'm going to do is I am going to go to church every Sunday. You think God needs you to go to church? Do you know who needs you to go to church? You need you to go to church. You do. The Bible says that we're to, to, to not forsake the assembling of the gathering of the brethren because God loves us and wants to grow us and bless us. And so he says, don't forsake that. And we turn around and say, God, if you will give me this, then I will give me this. Well, that's a terrible deal. Why would God do that? That's an assumption that we make that we have something God needs or wants. Jephthah is assuming that God needs him to offer a sacrifice to him. Well, that's inappropriate. The next thing is, we're assuming there's an equality between God's need and your need. You're assuming that you have a value that you can add to God's life equal to or at least a good deal for him to add value back to your life. That, that's an incredible assumption that one might make. 
And the next thing is that we're assuming that we're in a position of bargain. We're assuming that we can make a deal with God and deliver our end. Jephthah's assuming, God, if you give me victory, then when I go home, I'm going to give you something that you obviously won't. I'm going to kill something that you made. And then I'm going to bless you with that by serving you. Listen, remember what God said back in the beginning? He said, children of Israel, if you serve me and put me first, then I'm going to bless you. Now, that's different than me hiring God and saying, I'm going to pay you to do what I want you to do. One is recognizing, God, you, you own everything that I've got. You are the sovereign, the king, the Lord of glory, and I've got nothing to offer you or give you except my allegiance, and you have that. And I've got nothing over here that I can say, you know what, I've got seven. Yeah, I'll give you one if you give me. You go, God, <laughs> you made me, you made those seven things that I've got and all the other stuff. It's all yours, and I'm not going to ever stand between you and the stuff over here. Rather, I'm your servant, and I'm just going to serve you and follow you no matter what. Do you see the difference of heart there? You see the difference of the... Now, there's this is a Samson scenario. Now, there's a lot of these scenarios, but I'm just going to bring this one up. We're going to talk about Samson in a few weeks. But what about Samson? Do you remember Samson, right? He had this, this glorious, matted, nasty hair, and... and he said, I think that because he killed the lion and got the honey out, right? And all. Oh, anyway, so Samson's got this long hair. He, he's he's uh, a vow before God. And, and God says, if you cut your hair, you'll lose your strength. So you say, but, but see, there was an exchange. God said, I want you to have long hair. And if you don't it, then I won't give you that. So what about that? Is that an exception to this? Is God trading the value of Samson's long hair for Samson's strength? Well, the difference is between a condition versus a transaction. Now, this is a very important thing, and this is what Ryan was talking about this morning. The difference between a condition and a transaction. Here's the difference. Let's suppose you're standing on the subway, and, and, you're, and you're there, and you want to you go to 23rd and Broadway. So you pull out $100. Now, what does a subway ticket cost? I don't know. I don't think I've ever ridden a subway, but I'm from the country. So let's say you want to ride the subway in New York, and you pull out, what, five bucks. You're going to ride the subway. But you're going to do better than that. Pull out a $100 bill. Get in the middle of the track of whatever subway is closest. Wave that $100 bill and get the train to stop. When it stops, give the driver $100 and say, take me to 23rd and Broadway. An ex- a fair exchange. You're paying more than anybody else, so why wouldn't he go where you want, want, where you want him to? You're offering to hire that subway driver to take you where you want to go. Now, that's a transaction. A condition is that you want to go to 23rd and Broadway, so you come down and you walk up and you look at the little track, and they've got the blue line, the red line, orange line, whatever, and you say, okay, if I want to go to 23rd and Broadway, I need on train B4. I'm going to buy a ticket, and I'm going to take that ticket and stand on the platform. And when that train comes down, I get on that train, and it takes me where it's predetermined where it's going to go. I've met the conditions to take a ride from here to there. What's the difference? The difference is it's not according to your will. You're subjecting yourself to the elements of the subway that were conditioned before you got there. I know this is an imperfect illustration, but it's the best that I can do with, with uh, uh, what we have. Now, the other is a taxi. 
Now, if you have a taxi and you get out, you pull out a $100 bill and you tell that taxi, this is where I want to go, you can hire the taxi to take you where you want to go. You can say, I want to go there, and the taxi driver can say, fair exchange, you get in and I'll take you from here to there. Friends, that's religion. That is religion. You say, God, I'm going to give you this, and you take me there. That's religion. Relationship is saying, God, you deserve everything. You've created everything, and you have my unchanged, unchanging agreement that you are God, and I am going to be your servant. I'm going to follow you, and I ask for your rescue that you've already offered me. I want you to rescue me. You see the difference in that. You see, a condition is faith and belief. Faith and belief go to the grace train. He says what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So is that a work? Is that an exchange? God, I'm going to believe and then you're going to save me? No, it's a condition that God said. I'm looking for those who have a heart to trust in me, to follow me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's calling all. He says he will call all men unto him. He's calling everyone. Friends, get on board. I want to take you to everlasting life, all of you that want to go with me. And then there's self-will. I don't want to get on your train. Your train's going that way, and I want to go this way. I want to make a stop. Can I get on your train if I can make a stop? Can we stop over here? I want to get some. No. You're not, you're not the one in charge of this train. You're asking to get on board, and here's the condition, faith and belief in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's all. It's not a work. A transaction is, God, I'll give you obedience. I will obey your law. I'll keep this thing, and you give me eternal life. A transaction is to come and say, weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds, and if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I deserve eternal life. And you, you make that payment and you give me that safari truck. God doesn't need your good deeds. God's got complete righteousness and doesn't need you. And he doesn't need your pittance of righteousness. God doesn't need your honesty or your virtue or anything else. You need that. You need that to have fulfillment and happiness and joy in your life. But God has said, I want you to come and live with me, not because I have a deficiency that you can fill, but because I can fill your deficiency, and I want to. And if you want to, if you want to join me, God says, then here is the requirement, the condition, is that you come to me and trust in me and me alone. Here's what he did. It's called tempting God. Judges chapter 11, verse 30. He says, And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, and that I contend is tempting God. So here is some of the examples we have of tempting God in the Scripture. By motive. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him, and in Massas. So he says, you will not tempt God the way that you tempted him back there. Exodus 17, 3 tells us about that temptation. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? So what did the children of Israel do? They questioned God's motive. They said, did you bring us here to kill us? 
Is that what you want? Is that been your goal all the way along is just to kill us? They questioned his motive. Continuing on, verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massus and Meribeth because of the chiding of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So they questioned God's motive, and in doing so, that was called tempting God. The other way they did it was they questioned God's capability. They said in 1 Corinthians 10, 9, he tells us, Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of servants. So Paul says we can tempt Christ in the same way that the children of Israel tempted God and were destroyed of servants. Now, how do we tempt Christ? Let's see what it says about them. Psalm 78, 18. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? David tells us, here's how they tempted God. They questioned his capability. They said, can God do this thing? Is it possible for God to be able to feed us? Now, remember, this is after, what, 39 years of him giving a man in the wilderness? And they go, can God even do that? Can he give us meat in the wilderness? They said, can he furnish a table in the wilderness? They tempted God. Now, here's what Hebrews chapter 3 says. Now, remember back there in Psalms, David said they tempted God in their heart. You see where they tempted God? The scripture has one author, and he spans thousands of years. And here's what that one author says in Hebrews. Hebrews 3.12, it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. He said that your heart might be evil, that you might tempt God the same way that they tempted him in the wilderness, in that you disbelieve God. You say, God hasn't got this. God can't do this. I don't, I don't trust him to get me where I want to go, I'm getting off of the subway and I'm getting a taxi. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some religion. I'm going to keep the feast days. That's what he was, uh, uh, Ryan was talking about. They were saying, I'm going to keep the feast days. I'm going to have my kids get circumcised so that they will be acceptable to God. I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to give money to church. I'm going to pray. It doesn't matter what you add in there and you try to hire God to give you eternal life. And God says, man, that has no value to me. That's not what I'm desiring. You know what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11? It says, by faith Enoch was translated and did not see death and was not found for God had tr translating for he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh unto God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It says if you want to please God, there's one way to do it and that's trusting him believing on him and knowing that he is a rewarder of them that seek him. It's, it's trusting God. Now, here's some assumptions when we believe God. When we lay before God and say, God, I cannot do it. I'm trusting you to do it. Here's some assumptions that we're making, same as the assumptions that we would make if we try a transactional relationship. The first assumption is that we're believing God exists. If you come to God and, and say, save me, you've got to believe he's there. You've got to believe he's existing. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, it says. 
Secondly, we're believing that I can't do it myself, that I need God. We call that repentance. Turning from self, turning to God. I need you, God. The third thing is that he has the power to save me. In the wilderness, they said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? We're assuming that he has the power. And finally, that he has the desire, the motivation to save me. They said, did you bring us out here to kill us? You see why Paul says the same thing? Don't tempt God. Don't tempt Christ the way they tempted him. Because when we come to God, when we believe on him, the Bible tells us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We're saying, I quit. I give up. I'm coming to you. That meets the condition of salvation. That's what God wants from us. It's not a work that we're giving God in order for him to give us salvation. He says, I've already got salvation. I paid for it. It's already going there. I've already prepared a place. If you want it, come to me, all ye that weary and heavy laden. Now, this is a heart condition. It's not an action. Look at James chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now, this seems like a difficult passage. Wait till we get to the next one. 2.24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Man, that seems harsh. Look at what it says in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Those seem juxtaposed, don't they? They seem like they're in opposition to one another. They're not. They're discussing a heart condition. They're discussing whether your heart is in submission and belief to God or not. James says, do you want me to believe that you believe God? Do you want me to recognize that you have faith in God? Here's how I want you to justify that faith. Work. Act like it. If you're getting on the train saying, God, save me, and then you're trying to knock the windows out to get out, James says, I don't believe that you're on the train. I don't believe that that's your heart and your, your mind to follow Christ. I don't, I don't believe you in that. Ephesians, Paul says, look, you can't hire God to take you where you want to go. You can't, you can't do something that makes you worthy of God's grace. It's only a gift from God. You see, it's not a transaction that James is talking about. It's a heart condition. Now, I don't have time right now to go through all of the book of James, but go back and read it carefully and see the heart condition that he's talking about. He's saying some of you are telling me that you're sheep, and I'm looking at you and saying your heart is not for God. I see that by the way that you're acting, because if your heart was God for God, you would act different. Paul says, I don't care how you act. That will never get you on the train. It's a heart condition that will get you there, that will bring you to the Lord. Now to the war. I go really fast. So remember, he, had, uh, he has now gone over. He's going to fight. The Lord is with him. He's made his, his vow. 1132, so Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them unto his hands, and he smote them from Aora, even till thou come to Mineth, even twenty cities, and unto the plains of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Now, remember the fights that we've gotten in the past? They last a chapter. This one, it's like two verses. Boom, the war's over with. That was it. 
But the great emphasis is on the vow, and that's the reason that that's what we emphasize. So it starts up here, up in, in Mizpah or in uh, um, uh, Ramoth Gilead, and then he starts up there at the north, and then he travels down through this occupied territory and just wipes out these children of Ammon, just destroys them one after the other. And then we get to the cost. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. You know, God set this up from the beginning. He knew that this guy would make this awful vow. He knew that he would, he would offer this thing. Now, what if it had been a servant that came out or his wife or something that he said, I'm sorry, but I've got to do this. But God only gave him one daughter out of all that he wanted. He only got one daughter. And this daughter was a young virgin, young girl. And she comes out as he's coming back in victory. Word has swept total, total victory. He's coming home as, as the conqueror. Now he's the king of Gilead. Now everybody's going to follow him. He rides up over the ridge. He's got everybody with him. He's ready to see what comes out of the house. Lo and behold, it's his daughter. Remember, this is what she's doing. Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown in the sea. This was a... This was a thing that the children of Israel would do to recognize the victory that God was part of. It was something that Miriam had done. So his daughter comes out with a tambourine and she's shaking it and she's dancing for daddy. This we'll call her 14-year-old girl running around. Daddy, you, the Lord has brought victory by you. You have won. And daddy just takes his clothes in terror and starts weeping. I hate this story. Judges 11.35, and it came to pass. When he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. He said, I made a vow to God. Now here is the tragic, the tragic thing. Remember God said, if you recognize me and you put me first, that I will give you the victories? All he had to do was trust God. All he had to do was trust that God was going to keep his word. And go out there and follow God, and God was going to bring victory. That's all he had to do. Instead, he hired God. And he said, God, if you will, then I will. And God said, you don't know what that's going to cost me. You don't know what you just tried to hire me with. I'm going to go ahead and do what I was going to do. And when you get home, you're going to pay the ultimate price. I, got, I have to tell you, friends, as a father, I would much rather give my life than to give my daughter's life. Not even close. I would rather give my life than to give my daughter or my son's life, which God did. Not even, not even close. Can, there's, nothing, there's nothing worse for this dad than to come home and to recognize what he's done. 1136, and she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do unto me according to that which hath proceeded from thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee, of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. Here's the problem with the vow. When he offered to give God something, 
it was considered a fair exchange by the daughter. The daughter says, God took vengeance for you. Not that God is protecting his people. Not that God has delivered Israel. But God has given these people to you, Dad. And that's the problem with making that transaction with God is that we come back and say, I done it. You see what I got to do, God to do on my behalf. If we come to God and we say, God, you said if we serve you, you'll give us the victory. And we're going to serve you because you are God and we are not. And you come home and you have victory. You don't say, look what I did. Look what I made God do. You say, God made a promise and he is faithful to deliver on his promise. You see the difference in heart attitude. The difference in what happens when we get to heaven. You know, I'm not going to get to heaven and say, God, well, I lit a lot of candles. So, boy, you like candles, and I lit all those candles, so you're going to let me into glory early, right? I'm going to say, God, I, have des- I don't deserve this at all. I don't, I, I've done nothing to deserve it but you, God, but you. You looked down on my needy state, and you gave me victory when I didn't deserve it. Totally different attitude. Judges 11.37, and she said unto her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, and I and my fellows. And he said, go. And, she, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. How awful. How awful to wait two months for your daughter to come back so you can burn her in an offering to God for something that you didn't need. Friends, when you make a vow before God, be very careful. There is nobody that's going to make you stand on the altar and make a vow that you're going to love that woman for the rest of your life. There's nobody that's going to stand there and make you make a vow to love that man for the rest of your life. But listen, if you make that vow before God and man, you best keep it. You best recognize that this is not something that I can choose. It's something that I've promised God. 1140, that the daughters of Israel, oh, I, and Uh, 1139, and it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man, and and it was a custom in Israel. So she came back, and he built an altar, and he took wood, and he bound his daughter, and he laid her up there, and he burned her. What an awful, awful thing. You know, choices have consequences. God loves you. But choices have consequences. Be very careful about what we do. Not because God's vengeful and mean and going to do mean stuff to us. But because choices that we make have consequences in our own lives and in our children's lives. In our grandchildren's lives. So be careful. 1140. That the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gilead four days in a year. So it made such an impression on the nation of Israel that for the rest of for the rest of that period of time, every year the, the daughters would go out into the mountains and bewail this daughter of Gilead that was that was killed in this way. It affected the nation. It affected all of them. And that's what the story here is for, is to affect us. And it does. It has affected me many times. I have opened my mouth to say, God, if and I stop right there. Nope. Nope. God, if there's anything that I've got that you want, you've got it. If it's not in my power, give me the power and I'll give it to you. God, it's yours. I hold nothing back. And if I do, 
put your finger on it. And he does. This is the thing. Okay, it's yours. It's yours. And then God, act on my behalf because you're benevolent, because you love me. Not because I'm giving you something or because I've hired you to do it, but because you are awesome. And I get to call you daddy. We just read that verse, Abba, Father. Literally means daddy. Okay, heavy story. God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness, mercy and holiness. Thank you that you made a way for us. Father, that we don't promise you anything for you to give us salvation. Salvation is there. We step forward and receive it because you've already offered it. You've commended your love to us. Father, thank you that that's the God that you are. Father, you're good and we worship you. You're holy and we worship you. You're merciful, Father, and we worship you. Lord, go with us this week. Call us into your service. Help us to know what it is that we're holding back so we can just turn that over to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.